This is the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames. Brought to you by Special Needs Family Hour, Inc. For the next hour, we'll be discussing the particular challenges and real-life solutions for families with special needs. If you found us, please know that you are not alone. To find out more, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here is your host, Julie Ames, on AM860, The Answer. Thanks for listening today to the Special Needs Family Hour. I'm Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. Our show is dedicated to helping those parents and caregivers who are caring for special people. The theme of the show is the essay, Welcome to Holland, by Emily Pearl Kingsley. Kingsley describes the experience of raising a child with a disability. It's like planning a wonderful vacation trip to Italy, only to realize that your plane has landed in Holland. Holland isn't a bad place. It's just a different place. So you must go out, buy a new guidebook, learn a whole new language, and meet a whole new group of people you would never have met. Holland is a code word for living life with those with disabilities. My hope and prayer is that the challenges we all face in Holland will make us better people. It has been an interesting time for us in Holland. Our oldest, our oldest two daughters, Maria and Christina, are on the autism spectrum and have intellectual disabilities. Our youngest daughter, Anna, is a typical teenager who is in college. Christina is doing much better after her emergency visit to the hospital. She has epilepsy, and we are in the process of adjusting her medication at this point in time. A parent goes through an adjustment period when they realize their child has special needs. They experience grief and move on to acceptance. It is at that point that they acquire new dreams for their child. The goal is for your child to have a contented life. And it took us a while to figure the contented life part out, but that was really the word for it. This includes the following, teaching them the difference between right and wrong, helping them to become as independent as possible. It is important to have something meaningful to do every day in order to provide a sense of accomplishment. It is also important for them to have a sense of community to include friends, fun, and faith. Faith can be what brings them happiness. Ultimately, for those individuals with special needs, a contented life is contingent on having a safe place to live and services to provide help in the areas where an individual has deficits. Social Security and med waiver programs are the cornerstone for individuals with disabilities to address their housing and self-care needs. We have an awesome show today. Our guests are Liz Montefiore, the founder of Montefiore Consulting, and Patty Rendon of Rendon Support Services. Liz has been guiding individuals through the rough borders of Social Security for over 30 years. She has experienced and benefit coordination. Patty Rendon has over 23 years of experience med waiver support coordination. They're going to be answering questions from listeners about SSI benefits and med waiver services. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860 The Answer. Please stay with us. We will be right back. To reach Julie or any of the guests on today's show, call 813-816-2637. That's 813-816-2637. Or go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. I'm here with Liz Montefiore, founder of Montefiore Consulting, and Patty Rendon of Rendon Support Services. Liz has been guiding individuals to the rough waters of Social Security for over 30 years. Patty Rendon has been a support coordinator for over 20 years. Hi, Liz and Patty. 
Can you please tell our audience a little bit about your background and how you got involved in the areas that you're in? Why don't we start with you, Liz? Sure. Thanks, Julie, for having me today. Uh, I have been working with individuals who are disabled uh, for over 30 years, like you said. Yes. Began my career in workers' compensation, actually, as a claims adjuster. And after a decade or so of that, it kind of morphed into helping those in the Social Security system rather than in the very litigious workers' comp field. So I've been helping folks in the corporate world as well as in my own firm for the last 11 years uh, who are in need of filing or doing an appeal to a claim where they've been denied already for those benefits. So very much enjoy helping uh, individuals and families, one family at a time, fight for those benefits that they so desperately need. Yes. And explain to them how that you represent them instead of a lawyer representing them. Right. You don't have to be an attorney under the Social Security system to represent folks because it's an administrative law system. So the judges that we go before are administrative law judges. We do have to be tested by Social Security, which I've taken that test and keep up with CEUs each year. So they are uh, confident that we're aware of the laws and the changes and how to apply those to each case. So they should call you before a lawyer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then our other guest is Patty Rendon. And... The other area that parents have to be concerned about is med waiver support coordination. Can you please tell the audience a little bit about your background and what you do? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, I have been a mid-waiver support coordinator for 23 years in the Tampa area. I began my career out in San Francisco um, as a job coach and a travel specialist, helping individuals get to and from their jobs. I came to the Tampa area in Pinellas County, in which I um, continue working with support employment and supported living and case management. I then became coordinator and, and working directly with individuals on the Medicaid waiver um, here in the state of Florida back in 1997. So it's been a long road and it's always an ever-changing field. Yes. And having visited with Patty and taking three pages of notes after visiting with her, I realized how much I don't know. So I am so thrilled that both of you are here today. Of course, Liz, I think this is your third or fourth show. And this is really a follow-up to the show that we did with Liz on getting Social Security benefits for those from 18 to 24. Yes. So what we've done is we have listeners who have called in, and we're going to start with those questions related to Social Security. All right. So our first call is from someone named Kevin, I believe. Yeah, hi, Julie. Uh, my name's Kevin. I am currently 62 years old. I'm the father of two beautiful daughters, and both are under the age of 25, and they're both disabled. My question for you is, should I try to get my Social Security benefits for my daughters now, or should I wait? Thank you very much. Ah, and this is a question for Liz. Yes, that's an excellent question. Under the Social Security regulations, uh, Individuals who are disabled prior to age 22 are eligible for what's called the Disabled Adult Child Benefit. So in Kevin's situation, he is nearing retirement age for drawing his retirement. It would be an early basis if he wanted to start at age 62 and a half. Right. So my first advice is get with a financial advisor to determine when is the best time for you from a financial and tax perspective to start drawing your retirement, because that's going to be an important consideration for you. But your daughters will be eligible to draw on your record once you begin receiving that retirement benefit, as long as they can prove their disability began before age 22. Right. But will that, what I don't understand about that, does that affect Kevin's Social Security? 
Oh, his own payment? Yes. That would, no, it would not be affected. It's like an auxiliary benefit is what they call it. So there's a primary benefit amount that goes to, to the individual who is the wage earner on that record. And there's an auxiliary benefit available to dependents or others who may draw off that record. Wow, that's amazing. That really is an, an, an amazing benefit. Right. Well, the same thing is true for a regular Social Security claim for someone who's between the age of 18 and 64 who's filing for a claim. If you have minor children who are under age 18 when you're awarded disability, again, you get your primary benefit amount for yourself as the worker who's paid into the system, and then your dependents can receive an auxiliary benefit until they reach the age of 18 or 19 if they're still in school. Okay. Now, if Kevin passes away... What happens? Do the girls still receive that benefit? Yes, because that benefit is available to disabled adult children if their parents are deceased, disabled, or on retirement. Oh, my. So it's in any three of those scenarios. Wow. Amazing. Uh, Why don't we go to the next question? I believe this one is from Mary. Hi, my name is Mary. I have done some reading online about Social Security disability benefits and SSI benefits, but I'm confused as to which benefit I might be eligible for. Can you explain the differences between these types of benefits? Yes, that is such a great question and a very common area of confusion. Um, The best thing to remember is Social Security Disability Benefit can be compared to Social Security Retirement Benefit and that it is based upon your payment into the Social Security system via your paychecks. So when you work and they deduct that money that goes straight into the system, that is to make you eligible for the Social Security Disability Benefit and the Retirement Benefit. SSI is actually called Supplemental Security Income. It is a federal program, but each state administers it a little bit differently. But it is available to folks who do not have enough quarters that they have earned into Social Security to qualify for those benefits. Maybe, for example, if you're a mom who decided to stay home with your kids and raise your kids and you don't have a work history over the last 10 years, then you would file for SSI benefit should you become disabled at some point. Now, there's also financial criteria that must be met in order for you to qualify for SSI. It's a very um, stringent threshold to be means tested. Uh, So for a family, for example, $3,000 in income and assets is all you're allowed to have in order to qualify for that benefit. So it's a pretty stringent threshold. But the SSI is also a supplement for people who may have a work history where they have lower earnings that would make them eligible for a lower benefit under the Social Security Disability Program. Maybe you'll only get $500 a month, let's say, through your Social Security. You can file for SSI and get an additional benefit from SSI to get you up to that maximum benefit level for this year, which is $771 a month. So that way you have a minimum at least of $771 per month coming in between the two benefit programs. So you could qualify for both, or you could qualify for one or the other, depending on your work history and your current income and resources. Okay. Yeah, the medical standard for each of those programs is identical. So from a medical standpoint and functional standpoint, the process is the same. It's the financial aspects and the work history that differentiate the two. Okay, different SSI and SSI for disabilities. Exactly. Got it. Okay, awesome. And our next question is from Hannah. Hi, my name is Deirdre. I have a child who is turning 18 years old next year, and he has never been able to hold a job due to disabilities that were diagnosed when he was younger. He couldn't receive SSI benefits as a child because our family made too much money. 
Once he turns 18, what benefits should we be looking at for him besides SSI? Thank you. All right. Liz. Yes, that's an excellent question. And that's an example of a situation where the family had too much in income and resources right. to let him qualify as a child for SSI benefits. So now that he's 18, he's an independent adult living in someone else's household. So in addition to filing for SSI, I would recommend that he pursue food stamps. Yes. That would give them some assistance there. Um, and the disabled adult child benefit, um, once the disability has been proven to begin before age 22, would also be open to him if either of the parents again were on retirement or on disability or deceased okay so all right so what we're talking about is he can require he can qualify for SSI and then if one of his parents is they're retired based on that parents retirement or they've passed away correct they a child can receive the disability part of the parents retirement Correct. And depending on what that monthly benefit is, the SSI may or may not continue. So it would all be dependent on what that parent's monthly payment would be in order for that child to receive it. So for a family to claim that, they're not going to come out worse. They're not going to come out with less money if they go to claim that. No. Okay. And then the food stamp process, how does that work? Because usually when a family goes in and claims SSI, they say it's to help pay for food and shelter. So how do the does the food stamp work with the SSI? Right. Again, he would be an adult living in another adult's household. So as an adult with no resources, he would qualify for the program uh, under food stamps and meet those criteria, um, assuming he had no other assets to his name, you know, trust funds or anything like that. Um, but, yeah, the food stamps is there. The SSI is there to be used for the person who's disabled. Right. But food stamps is certainly an adjunct benefit that can be um, – applied for and should be applied for when the eligibility requirements are met just to help the family okay. and now help the, the individual. Now, the food stamps, is that like coupons? How does that work? Right. It's the, um, there's an electronic version. They also have the coupon version for those that aren't able to do the electronic version. I'm not familiar specifically exactly with how they do it now this year, but I know I've seen clients that have had each the electronic method with a card as well as the vouchers that have been used. So basically they just go to any grocery store? There, You can see... Um, el- most grocery stores will post on their windows whether or not they accept that program. And then online, you can get a list of items that are eligible to be bought using that, that particular service and benefit. Okay. And do they still call it food stamps? Um, it has various or different they change, other they names. names. Food stamps is the most commonly known Got that it. I'm familiar with. Okay. All right. Well, on to the next question. Hi, I'm Hannah. I am 21 years old, and I'm currently receiving SSI benefits. Can I work and still receive SSI? Right, Liz? Yes, that's a great question. And the easy answer is yes, you can. However, there will be an impact to the benefit. Uh, there'll be an offset taken for any earnings that you have um, directly against that monthly benefit. And SSI will check with you each month to determine what income you have coming in um, and whether or not you're going to still qualify month to month for that benefit. So um, my recommendation to folks is, yes, if you need to have money coming in from wages, just be careful how many hours you're working. As long as you're receiving an uh, excuse me, a dollar's worth of SSI each month, you will still retain your Medicaid eligibility. But because the benefit's only $771 per month maximum, um, the offset will take that benefit amount down pretty quickly, depending on how many hours you're working. Oh, my Interesting. I had never thought that they would, if they no longer had SSI at all, that they would not have their 
Medicaid. Right. Well, the Medicaid eligibility that is associated with SSI remains active as long as the beneficiary is receiving at least a dollar's worth of SSI each month. Once that stops, then you have to qualify for Medicaid under a different part of the program. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Why don't we take a break there, and then when we come back, we're going to have some questions related to MedWaiver. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. I'm here with Liz Montefiou and Patty Rindon. Both are experts in the respective fields of Social Security and MedWaiver. They're answering questions from listeners about SSI benefits and MedWaiver services. To reach Julie or any of the guests on today's show, call 813-816-2637. That's 813-816-2637. Or go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. I'm here with Liz Montepu and Patty Rindon. Both are experts in the respective fields of Social Security benefits and MedWaiver services. They are answering questions from listeners about SSI and MedWaiver. Now, on that last call, we were just talking about how it's the responsibility of the person receiving SSI to report monthly how much they're earning. Correct. Okay. Right. And there is a formula that when you're earning SSI, you or if you're earning wages, you won't ever earn less money than you would on SSI. Correct. However, but there will be the offset that brings the benefit amount down as the wage amount goes up. Right. So as long as you're earning one dollar of SSI, you still qualify for Medicaid. Correct. Yeah, okay. but you're right. It is important. The individual who's receiving the benefit, the onus is on them to report to Social Security any income that they have. And that goes for SSI recipients as well as Social Security disability recipients that are trying to go back to work. So it is your responsibility. Social Security will eventually catch up with you and right. look at your Social Security number and determine that you have earnings. And then you're in an overpayment situation months down the road that you don't want to be in. Right, because so, they want their money back. Exactly. And they're going to deduct it from your SSI paycheck. Correct. Right. Yes. So better to... to Put the kibosh on that and report it yourself you yes. know, each month. Okay. All right. Now our next caller, we'll see. Hi, this is Liv, and I'm calling because my daughter is 17 years old and is in special education programs at her high school. I've tried filing for SSI benefits for her, but she was denied because they said we didn't have adequate evidence to prove her claim. I submitted records from the school and from her doctors. What else can we do to prove her claim? Thank you. Okay. That's a great question. And we went over this a little bit more in more detail in the last show that we did. But, yes, yes, the medical records and educational records are the foundation for any claim for a child that's filing for SSI. But great evidence that you can also obtain to support that would be statements from family members and friends who observe the functional issues that you have with your child, whether it be physical, cognitive, whatever it might be. Same thing with therapists or case managers that might work with that child. Anyone, if they're in an after-school program, anyone who may be in a authority over them in that program that can provide a statement just with regard to day-to-day functioning is really going to be an important piece of evidence. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. Now we are going to start our questions related to MedWaiver and Patty Rindon is the expert. <laughs> so she is going to be answering these questions for us today. Our first question 
Hi, I am a father of a daughter with cerebral palsy. Uh, I'm 65 and I just retired this past May. We've been notified that my daughter, who's on the home and community-based uh, waiver, who has uh, SSI, will be losing her SSI. Um, we were told that she'll be receiving SSDI and Medicare. What does that mean for uh, her services she receives through the home and, home and community-based services or waiver? Thank you. That is a question we're asked very frequently, and I think it catches some families off guard. Mm -hmm. So when you retire or an individual retires and their daughter or son has been diagnosed with a developmental disability prior to the age of 18, um, and they've been receiving Social Security benefits under SSI or Supplemental Social Security Income, when the family member or dependent their mother, their father has retired or passed away, they will be receiving a notification that that SSI benefits will cease because they will now be receiving dependent benefits off their retired or deceased parent. And that makes a good scenario that they're now eligible to receive Medicare benefits for their health care. And they're usually their SSA or their disability income is more than SSI. However, without having Medicaid, they're no longer eligible for the home and community-based service waiver. So it's very critical that when they're notified that this benefit's going to shift from SSI to Social Security Disability Income, that they reapply for Medicaid through Access Florida under the Home and Community-Based Service Waiver. And by doing that, they can still maintain their Medicaid and maintain their Social Security Disability and Medicare. So they maximize their health insurance and maximize their financial benefit based upon their family members that's been deceased. Oh, my. Now, is that Florida law or is that national law? It's two-part because their SSI is based upon Florida guidelines. Right. And although it's a Social Security benefit, Florida has its own Medicaid and Social Security, Supplemental Social Security Income guidelines. Wow. But Social Security disability is going to be through Medicare and your federal benefits. But you must work with the local, your local Social Security office to be able to coordinate that transition. Right. But here's what's fascinating to me is that if you, if a child, I guess if a child was living at home and they received the Medicare, then they could, you could augment, if, if they had the means, they could augment the insurance for other things. You know how the elderly people are buying extra um, insurance policies to complement their Medicare and now, all that Now, if you stuff. have Medicare through your Social Security disability income and you remain on the home and community-based service waiver, you then maintain your Medicaid. So both the home and community-based service waiver would cover any consumable medical supplies that you Got would it. need okay. that the Medicare and Medicaid would not pay for. Okay. However, you must work with your Social Security office to maintain both your benefits. And so right. Access Florida through Department of Children and Families and Social Security must be worked in partnership. But if you're on the Home and Community-Based Service Waiver, your waiver support coordinator can walk you through the process. But information is powerful. And so right. your support coordinator must have the information that this change is occurring. 
Right. And this is the thing is every individual on the med waiver has a support coordinator, someone like you. Correct. So right now there's over 30,000 people in the state of Florida that have home and community based waiver services. And each one of those does have an individual waiver support coordinator. And that waiver support coordinator will help coordinate everything they need to run their day-to-day lives. But they want to do that in conjunction with their national supports, their family members, their community partners. They want to be a strong advocate that walks side-by-side with that individual to maximize their benefits and their life. Awesome. Okay, well, why don't we go to the next question? Hi. My son has an intellectual disability. He has Wilson's SSI because his father died this past spring. My son has begun begun receiving SSDI-dependent benefits and Medicare benefits. Does this change from Medicaid to Medicare affect his home and community-based waiver services? You know, this is one of the problems that all of a sudden um, a family member passes away and the family is so overwhelmed and consumed with grief that they forget to prepare for these types of moments. And so I think it's always vital that we advocate for the individuals with disabilities and their families to have somebody standing by as an outside party that when something occurs as a disaster in their life, that they have an outside person reminding them of key elements and your individual son or daughter's benefits is critical. The services they receive maintain their daily lives from personal supports in your home to their supportive living coaching if they're living in their own apartment, helping them get to and from grocery stores and medical appointments. And so having that outside person or the waiver support coordinator being that one of five calls that you call when a major emergency happens in your household, they can be looking for those key elements and not missing a notification that that Medicaid benefit's going to end. And in order for that home and community-based services to continue, you must have Medicaid. So within about 30 to 60 days, you're going to get a letter or a postcard from Medicaid saying your Medicaid benefits are ending because your Medicare benefits are beginning. And so having that waiver support coordinator on top of it early, they can be in conjunction ready to apply through Access Florida for those Medicaid benefits because you have an open home and community-based service waiver slot. Wow. And when we say Access Florida, what does that mean? Through Department of Children and Families, if you're applying for Medicaid, you're applying for food stamps, or you're applying for the home and community-based service waiver, you go to Access Florida under the Department of Children and Families, and it's their application process. And you as a coordinator would do that? We will assist you in doing Doing that. that. Okay. One of our roles is a partnership. We do not want to take away your ability or the individual's ability to be able to do what they can do. True. want to partner with them so that we don't maintain their disability. So that's excellent. That's really good. All right. So here's the thing. The minute, let's say the father dies, how soon does all this go into play? Like when do you get this notice? All you're of a sudden? usually notified 30 to 60 days, but you're still consumed with all of the things happening with that family member passing away. Right. So if you make sure that, you know, you outline it was, you know, keeping and planning for disasters. You outline these are the people we're going to call. I need my insurance calls. I need my credit right, cards called. Right. I need my bank accounts. I need to report this. 
your waiver support coordinator should be one of your top five calls so that they can remind you and advocate for the family and the individual what comes next. And so you're not having to be overwhelmed with this change. Right, right. Okay, on to the next question. Hi, my name is Joe. My daughter is 17 years old and has Down syndrome. She is currently on the home and community-based waiver. She's receiving Medicaid now. When she turns 18, we're planning on applying for SSI benefits. Will her benefits and services change once she's receiving SSI? That is an ever-evolving topic. Any child or children that turn 18 comes with pitfalls. And one of those pitfalls Mm. is changing of benefits. So you're eligible for Medicaid in various different ways. And children under the age of 18 that are not receiving supplemental Social Security income are receiving Medicaid because they have been enrolled under the Home and Community-Based Service Waiver. And with that enrollment comes Medicaid benefits. They become eligible based on their disability and their need for services to maintain and live in the community. But once they receive SSI benefits or supplemental Social Security benefits, their Medicaid will change. And so they no longer will be eligible based on their waiver slot, but they'll be based upon the fact that they're receiving the supplemental Social Security income. So it's a shift in their eligibility. The benefits itself will not change. And as long as they maintain Medicaid, then their home and community-based service waiver is still approved. Okay, and usually you don't apply for SSI until your child turns 18, but in this situation, what do they do? Again, they're preparing for her to change 18. Right, so so they already at know. the time, yes, you want to be prepared. You want to have all your documentation. You want to have your determination, your eligibility documentation ready. Okay, awesome. Let's take a break there, and when we come back, we will continue answering questions. Well, Patty will continue answering questions. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. I'm here with Liz Montefu and Patty Rindon. Both are experts in the, the respective fields of Social Security and MedWaiver. They're answering questions from listeners about SSI benefits and MedWaiver services. To reach Julie or any of the guests on today's show, call 813-816-2637. That's 813-816-2637. Or go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860 The Answer. I'm here with Liz Montefiore and Patty Rindon. Both are experts in the respective fields of Social Security benefits and MedWaiver services. They're answering questions from listeners about SSI and MedWaiver. So our next question is on the MedWaiver, and it's for Patty. Hi, my name is Amy, and my question is two-part. My son is 33 and has cerebral palsy. He's been notified that his SSI benefits will end as of August 31st. If he loses his SSI, will he lose his Medicaid? And if he loses his Medicaid, will that affect his home um, and community-based waiver? You know, that's a really okay. good question, and this happens more often than you think. Okay. So many times our individuals are working in the community and living in the community. And so 
we want to be as waiver support coordinators, advocates, and working with their various service providers, and we want to make sure they understand their role. And so as a supported employment coach that's working directly with your individual that has a job in the community and is also receiving SSI, we want to really encourage that monthly reporting of their benefits right. so that at a certain point, you don't get notified that now you're losing your benefits because you've not reported your wages and they're having to reduce your benefit level because that will reduce your overall quality of life right. and your income. Right. But as long as you're receiving at least $1 on SSI, you will continue to receive Medicaid. If you lose your SSI because, again, a family member has retired or a family member is deceased, a dependent parent or um, one of your parents, then you do need to reapply for that Medicaid. And so you do need Medicaid to become eligible for the home and community-based service waiver. And in order for you to be eligible for the services, you also need Medicaid. And so the SSI is not critical as other than for your income, but it is critical for the partnership with Medicaid for the home and community-based service waiver. Okay. All right. (laughs) The next question. Hi, I'm Melissa. I am 45 years old with cerebral palsy and living in my own home. Does SSI benefits affect what services I am eligible for under the home and community-based waiver? Yeah, this is a big misconception. Individuals feel like um, if they are diagnosed with an intellectual or a developmental disability and they become eligible for Social Security supplemental income, they receive Medicaid. And based upon that benefit, they think that they get some services and not others. And that is not correct. The services you receive under the Home and Community-Based Service Waiver is clearly defined by your needs. So each individual is going to have a questionable situational instrument assessment, and that'll go over your level of care and where your needs meant for your, um, based upon your disability, where your limitations are, and how the services under the waiver can assist you in living a full and productive life. So your services are based upon your level of care and your needs not based upon what benefits you receive. However, make sure you understand in order to receive home and community-based services, you must have Medicaid. Yes. Excellent point. Okay. Let's do our next question. Hi. My son lives in a group home under the home and community-based waiver. He's receiving SSI and Medicaid. My question is, the group home is the payee. What is his responsibility to pay for And what does the home and community-based waiver pay for? This is an excellent question. Many family members get confused on the responsibilities of Social Security and the home and community-based waiver for what's paid for under the group home. So if the group home is the payee for the Social Security benefit, they are responsible to report what that money went for. They're responsible to keep receipts. And they're responsible to report what those wages that were used for throughout the year on an annual basis to Social Security. Now, each month, the individual should receive a monthly stipend to spend as they will to pay for their shampoos, their clothing, their um, any of their personal daily living skills, um, deodorants, anything that they would need. Then they have a room and board that comes out of that Social Security, and that is the same no matter who you are living in the group home. The room and board designation is determined by the Agency for Persons with Disabilities, and then any money above that 
is eligible to be spent by the individual, but will be housed by the group home. But it must be separate from any of the group home's personal accounts. Each individual must have their own accounts, and it must be separate. You cannot commingle funds in a group home with each other. Each individual's funds must be accounted for all the time. And the waiver support coordinator should be going in there on a quarterly basis to monitor those funds and know what those funds are being spent for. But that does not affect their services. Their services will be paid through the home and community-based service waiver. Oh, my. So there are two. Basically, you have two funds. You have the funds that the group home deals with, and then the individual that lives there has their own account. No. So when your SSI comes in, your SSI should go into your pot of money okay. and your in your pot, whatever that is in your account. Right. Take it out of that account should be your room and board directly paid to the group home. Okay. Then you should get a monthly allowance that comes out of that. And then you have excess money above that. That's part of your social security. All of that must be accounted for from the payee to social security. But that only pays for your personal items, your activities. It doesn't pay for your food. It doesn't pay for the and electric that's what in the, the group community-based waiver pays. The community-based waiver pays what they call a residential habilitation rate. And that's what they pay the group home to provide direct training on skills to work towards the goals that you've defined in your individual personalized support plan. Awesome. All right. Let's take a break there. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. I'm here with Liz Montefiore and Patty Rindon. Both are experts in the respective fields of Social Security and Med Waiver, and they are answering questions today for listeners. We'll be right back. To reach Julie or any of the guests on today's show, call 813-816-2637. That's 813-816-2637. Or go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Special Needs Family Hour with Julie Ames on AM860, The Answer. To contact Julie, go to specialneedsfamilyhour.com. That's specialneedsfamilyhour.com. Now, here's Julie Ames. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM860, The Answer. I'm here with Liz Montefiore and Patty Rindon. Both are experts in the respective fields of Social Security benefits and med waiver services. They are answering questions from listeners about SSI and MedWaiver. And we have our last question of the day, and it's for Patty about MedWaiver. Hi, I have a question. My daughter is 38 and has SSA and Medicare. She has Medicaid due to her developmental disability and her slot on the home community-based waiver. Do we as her payee have to afford anything to Social Security every year in order for her services under the home community-based waiver to continue? Now, that question is kind of two-part. Because under as a payee, you are responsible for being accountable for what her um, benefits were paid for and what those were used for. So, yes, you do need to make an accounting on an annual basis of what that Social Security benefit paid for. But as far as her waiver services go, because she's receiving Social Security disability income and Medicare, then her Medicaid is determined based upon her eligibility for the home and community based service waiver. And on an annual basis, 
the individual will be sent a notice of review. And so they have to review on an annual basis that they are still eligible for the home and community-based waiver so that their Medicaid continues. So if you're receiving SSA or Social Security Disability and Medicare, and then you're receiving your Medicaid through the Home and Community-Based Service Waiver, you want to make sure that on an annual basis, you have that review through Access Florida and the Department of Children and Family. If you've not received that, your benefits could end. So it's very important that once you receive that notification, you respond quickly. Okay. And is there a certain time limit? You usually, when you received your benefit, if you received your Medicaid starting in February, you can anticipate December or January getting a notification the following year. But as soon as you get that notification, you should contact your waiver support coordinator immediately so they can walk you through and partner with that process. Yes. So any letters like that, you don't put them aside, you answer them. No. And a lot of times when you receive that letter, sometimes the date that they expect the documents to be received are either on or within 48 hours from the receipt or even prior to receiving the letter. So it's critical by the end of that calendar month, you get that documentation in. Wow. That's amazing. Well, that was our last question. And on the break, we've been discussing group um, type situations. Can you explain to our listeners, because we have just a few minutes briefly about different types of group homes and what you're looking at. Sure. So many of our individuals that are on the home and community-based service waiver live in various living situations. Some of them live in the family home. Some of them live in rent apartments with either a roommate or not. Some of them own their own home, whether it's a house, a condo, um, and then others live in either an ALF or a group home. And so the differences between the two are really the licensing guidelines. Okay. If they live in an ALF... They're licensed under ACA and those guidelines. Okay. ALF stands for Assisted Living Facility. Facility. And ACA stands for? Agency for Healthcare Administration. Okay. So if they're in ALS, that's they're under ACA. And Correct. then the group homes are? Group homes are licensed through the Agency for Person with Disabilities. Um, okay. Both of them are monitored on a monthly basis where they have a licensing specialist that comes out and meets with them and monitors their guidelines. But the difference is really um, about the direct care services and what the staff are required to do. Remember, ACA is medically based. The Agency for Personal Disabilities is community-based. So one is much more community-friendly. The other one is much more medically sound. So your child would go, your child would need to be in an ALS-type facility if they have medical challenges. Not necessarily. Or intellectual disabilities. Not necessarily. Okay. Because when I say they're medically based, that means the things that they're going to be licensed on are like a hospital where you have to have a sign to make sure they wash their hands. Or so it becomes much more of a institutional type. I don't want to say institutional. When I say institutional, I mean a hospital or nursing home where you see those signs and it's not as homey or friendly, whereas a group home is going to be much more individually designed because it's a community-based setting. Now, those kids, though, sometimes have medical situations. Absolutely. You can live in a group home and have a variety of behavioral challenges as well as medical challenges. And each group home is going to specialize in the needs of your individual son or daughter. And then the individualized personal support plan identifies what that group home should be working directly with your son and daughter on. Well, and when a child's in a group home, how many people can live there? Typically, with the Agency for Personal Disability, you average four to six individuals in a group home. Wow. 
All right. Gosh, this, this sounds like another show. <laughs> We're almost out of time. Um, wow. All right. Yes, we will have a, you know what, Patty, we're going to do another show with you and I plan to have the newsletter out for this show. And for those of you that aren't signed up for the newsletter, you need to be because I put all the links that you need to know. And I'm going to send out after we do this show and a week or two, I'm going to send out a newsletter with all my shows related to finances, social security, everything they need to know linked to the podcast on those subjects. So you too, Liz, Patty, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. And really, we're excited to be able to share the information we have. Thank you so much for having me again, Julie. It was great to be here. I'm Julie Ames, and you're listening to the Special Needs Family Hour on AM 860 The Answer. Don't forget to like the Special Needs Family Hour on Facebook and sign up for our newsletter. Please join us next Sunday afternoon at 1. Thank you for listening to the Special Needs Family Hour. If you've missed any part of today's program, you can get the podcast of this and every show at specialneedsfamilyhour.com. While there, please take advantage of the resources we've made available. And if you're so inclined, please support the advertisers that support this program. Special Needs Family Hour, Inc. is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. More than anything, just know that you are not alone. And we invite you to join us next Sunday at 1 only on AM 860. The answer.